here in Australia. Our Defence Force has just finished its inquiry into the war in Afghanistan and there are likely to be you know, charges moved forward against you know, 23 Australian Special Forces soldiers for 39 deaths in Afghanistan, 39 murders. But the point is the ADF is making sure that justice comes out. You, know, yeah. you can fight it, it, war and look for justice with the same intensity, even when things go wrong. Hello, audience, and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. Joining us again, which makes me very happy, we have Mr. Damien Lewis, who has written a new book, which is awesome. Hello, Damien. Hi, guys. Great to be back. And of course, virtually somewhere in his own little studio, looking at a screen, making the world go round, Tim Whiffen. Thank you for having me, David. <laughs> Well, I figure you make the world go around because you know how to press all the buttons. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, at least one of the good things I can do. It's a very important thing as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> now, Damien, last time we had you on, even though we meant to talk about your new book at the time, we really didn't get onto your new book at the time. And yet your last new book kind of links to your newest new book. And that SAS Shadow Raiders is about, you know, the radar wars and going and nabbing a radar. And the new book, SAS Band of Brothers, begins with the fun of being on a plane flying over the French coastline and nearly getting shot to pieces because of the significance of German radar. Is this a deliberate thing where the books are starting to follow each other or dumb luck? <laughs> I think it's just an accident to be honest with you. It's very, very cool good, though. It's a very good point. Um, yeah. I mean, Band of Brothers opens, you know, in the immediate aftermath of D-Day and you're absolutely right. You know, there's 12 SAS guys, one patrol on a Sterling bomber, but converted obviously into a, a jump platform when they're flying into France to deploy behind the lines to stop the German armor being rushed to the D-Day beaches and driving the Allies back into the sea. And they do very much come under very accurate German anti-aircraft fire and they're pretty nearly shot down. Well, they crash land at the end, don't they? Mm. Crash land on the British coast, back on the British coastline. Yeah. And then what, fly out two days later? Yeah, so they have this absolutely epic first attempted insertion, uh, you know, deep behind the lines in France. And, yeah, that, you know, they, they survive losing two engines, not finding the drop zone, or at least not finding the reception party on the drop zone, getting almost back to the UK, and then having to crash land on the, on the UK coastline and, and almost crashing into the channel. And, and, you know, it, it's a very close brush with death. And, of course, their commander at 1SAS, you know, the legendary uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Blair Paddy Main, says, well, back you go again, guys. So they have about 48 hours to turn around and they're sent back in to ex execute exactly the same mission. Yeah, like we think about the tempo of ops now being problematic for special operations. You don't really realise that with it significantly less technology, but the need to keep pushing. The intensity of ops was just as bad. To have essentially had a near miss like that, everyone's nerves jangled, the crash landing, and you know, back two days later for what must have been one of the most successful SAS missions of the war, to put a 12-man stick in and achieve everything they set out to achieve was absolutely remarkable. Yeah, well, cons especially considering, as you say, that, that horrendous start to the whole uh, enterprise, you know, um, the crash landing is a very, very serious. I mean, they're, they're flying back across the channel to the UK on two engines in a four engine bomber, losing height and having to jettison everything they can from the, uh, from the Sterling's, uh, you know, um, jump bay, the jump hatch through the bomb bay, basically including personal gear, shaving kit, weapons, explosives. The only thing they don't throw out is, is the men themselves. Um, and, you know, they, they, they only just make that belly landing on, on, on the UK uh, southern coastline. And as you say, then to turn back around, deploy pretty much straight again on the first available Sterling back into France, uh, parachute into the drop zone and carry out this stunning ambush of this German train carrying 
armour and ammunition towards the Normandy beaches, but also to blow up scores of heavily guarded uh, ammunition dumps, uh, which contain all, 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 all the heavy shells for those, uh, for those, for the, for the German tanks. I mean, you know, uh, an incredible string of missions carried out very successfully and then followed up by one of the most daring escapes you could ever read about. Well, just the simple thing of, you know, the, the second time back and have managed to get on the ground and one of the French speakers is told, well, chap, off you go to the village and get some intel. Yeah. And then to just yeah, so, put over, coat over his you know, battle dress, pop his beret in his pocket. So he's essentially in a uniform and wearing a trench coat in weather where it doesn't really look appropriate to be in a trench coat. So he already looks dodgy. Yeah, I mean, you know, that they... You know, when the SAS were pulled back from, from, from North Africa and, and, and Mediterranean Italian operations to the UK in preparation for D-Day, they obviously realised that they, well, two things. One, they would be often deploying and operating alongside the French resistance. That was self-evident. Um, and of course, the SOE, Special Operations Executive, you know, Churchill's Ministry for Ungentlemanly Warfare, had already established, in many places long established, French resistance network so they had that contact and they could link up the SAS on the ground with French resistance parties who had been armed via airdrops you know back by Churchill and Roosevelt so that was all in place but of course you needed to communicate with each other and which meant you needed French speakers and you know there was this huge drive within the SAS once back in the UK kind of end of 30 sorry 43 early 44 to to, to bring you know French speakers into into the ranks of the SAS, and so one of the guys on this patrol, which was codenamed Sabi Seventy, by the way, and uh, Sabi stands allegedly stands for safe all business as usual. It was a standard uh, radio reply that you would send, you know, to let headquarters know all all was fine. Um, so Sabi Seventy includes two French speakers, one of whom is is an actual well, he's a Czech of birth. Serge, Corporal Serge Vachelik, but he's a Frenchman of adopted nationality because his parents moved there when he was young. Um, most incredible, ex you know, extraordinary story of escape, you know, already during the war. But basically, he fights in the, in, in, in the defence of France, in the French army, he gets captured by the Germans around about Dunkirk. He's being marched towards Germany, um, having been injured, and, and jumps into a river to escape and then executes this months-long epic journey across France, Vichy France, Spain, Portugal, having, you know, getting captured, escaping, getting captured, escaping, uh, you know, just, just extraordinary journey, and eventually gets to Portugal and manages to catch a ship in a convoy bound to Britain and gets to Britain, and, and what's driving him the whole time, what's driving Vachelik is the desire to fight, of course, and then eventually trains with the free French parachutists and He's recruited into the SAS because he's a native French speaker. So he's on the patrol, as is um, Lieutenant. So the second in command of the patrol is a Lieutenant uh, John Rex Vihay, who's actually from Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. And, and Mauritius being a former French and British colony, he's also bilingual, speaks fluent French and fluent, uh, fluent English, obviously. So they have two French speakers on the patrol. But when they land, uh, you know, on, 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 on that first drop zone that they actually get into and they have to execute the sabotage operation, as you say, Vachelik is, is, is ordered by uh, Captain Patrick uh, Garstin, MC, already a military cross winner, to go off and find out the intelligence they need, especially the train times, so they can sabotage and blow it up. And he does. He throws on a great coat over his uniform and trots off into the local town, Doudon. Um, you know, and it's, as you say, you know, the risk of discovery is legion, but, but those were the kind of risks that, that the SAS were taking all across occupied France at, at this time during the war. You know, there were countless such operations underway to, to, to do that vital mission to stop Hitler from rushing his armoured legions to the D-Day beaches, and the risks taken were, were really quite extreme. And it's what's incredible is how many of these guys really physically shouldn't have ever been there. So many guys in this stick have already got major injuries, have had major battle damage and were pretty much written off by any military, but just mentally said, body, keep up. And people, yeah. believe in them, and particularly the SAS kept believing in them. 
Yeah, I mean that 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 that's what really struck me about this 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 twelve man patrol. So, you know, uh, Captain Patrick Garstin, Garstin, sorry, he was the the commander. Most incredible war story already. So he he'd fought in the rearguard, you know, um, towards Dunkirk, um, and that's where he'd won his military cross. He'd been awarded his MC in the field, um, or citated in the field at least. Gets, gets to Dunkirk, gets on a ship, the ship gets sunk, he manages to get out of the porthole, pretty much dies. Uh, so he's injured, he's almost been, 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 been killed at Dunkirk, finally gets back to the UK on one of the last ships and, um, you know, is, is awarded his MC, then deploys to, to Africa to fight in the East Africa campaign, which was pretty much a kind of, you know, a guerrilla warfare campaign against the Italians deep behind the lined operations. Uh, but he's dogged by his injuries all through um, all, all, all through that time, and he's he's eventually ordered back to the UK, and he's ominously um, scheduled for, for for final disposal, i.e., to be invalided out of the military. And instead, he gets back to the UK, somehow volunteers for airborne training, earns his jump wings, and then volunteers for the SAS, and then leads this patrol into uh you know on behind the lines operations deep in france when actually shouldn't have been serving in the military at all and likewise his second in command lieutenant vihe um again you know volunteered from from mauritius in the indian ocean to fight in the allied cause no real compunction to be in the war whatsoever deploys to north africa very early on in the war volunteers for airborne training again making the argument he's a native French speaker and he's going to be needed, uh, gets injured in airborne training and again is, is, is basically invalided out of the military or at least banned from frontline operations, then manages to get back to the UK um, and volunteers for the SAS and is accepted into the SAS because they know they need these French speakers. This guy is jump trained and they'll turn a blind eye to the fact that he shouldn't have been on active operations at all. Those, those are the two guys, the, the commander and second in command of the patrol. You know, it just beggars belief that they, they, they voluntarily stepped into the fire at the tip of the spear to, 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 carry, you know, to carry out this operation. It's incredible too, you know, we kind of think of soldiers being young, but what was the oldest of these guys, like 28 or something? So the old yeah. man of the operation was 28. And yet yeah, they've got the, the, 45 years of battle experience by this point. That's right. So the oldest was in his late 20s. And, you know, it never ceases to amaze you and humble you when you read these kind of or research and read these kind of stories. And you think, you know, these men were so young. And of course, there were women, you know, deploying with the SOE who were equally young um, and responsibility placed upon their shoulders. You know, when I was kind of at university enjoying myself doing a bit of studying but drinking a lot of beer uh, these guys were taking on the most extraordinary responsibility and risks and knowing of course when they deployed knowing that if they were captured pretty much nothing but torture and murder would follow they knew that you know these guys before they deployed on on certainly by the time they deployed on these d-day missions and give you an indication of how um, you know how 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 foremost this was in their mind. I was talking to a to a one of the few surviving SAS veterans of, of World War Two who deployed on these D-Day missions. A chap called Alec Borry, talking to him very recently, and he said, "We knew that if we were about to be captured, we should at least bury and hide our commando knife, because the commando knife, that iconic blade, was seen as being a signature of commando and special forces." Yeah, it would just make things so much worse. Yeah, you maybe had some chance of pretending to be a lost, you know, member of an air crew or something else if there was enough chaos. But being found with a weapon that was so identifiable, or being found with the red beret, just too distinctive. And that's the incredible thing, and really the point of your new book is, yeah, these guys have the most incredible near miss with the first flight in, then have a spectacular mission, huh? and then there's what most of the book is about which is flying into an ambush and everything that happens after that. Yeah, so the, the, they carry out this first incredible operation. Then they're pulled out of uh, an, a, a Luftwaffe air base in the most extraordinary escape uh, rescue mission you can possibly imagine. Having said that, 
it's interesting that the SOE had, of course, been flying in agents on those light Lysander aircraft for, for, for months, years now, in, into occupied, all over occupied uh, territories occupied by Germany and Europe. And so they were, they were used to dropping and collecting agents from the field. And so they had worked with special forces in, in the run up to D-Day. They'd actually trained individuals to go and from the special forces to go in and prepare airstrips in the middle of nowhere. It could be anywhere, farmer's field, a strip of road, whatever it might be, to take aircraft so they could drop in, pull, pull individuals out and replace them in the field. And, and those kind of airborne missions did happen quite often during this period. So they're pulled out by this very brave RAF air crew. And again, very, very quickly, Lieutenant Colonel Maine turns them around and he says, actually, that German air base that you've been pulled out of, and by the way, before being pulled out of that air base, they plant the, red, the last of their charges on a couple of the, the aeroplanes there and the ammo dumps, and so they can blow the air base up after they leave with these delayed fuses. And so Maine says, look, you know, you've been in there, you've seen that air base. Uh, we now want it destroyed for obvious reasons. We're going to deploy you to a, to a drop zone just nearby. Um, in, in, in a densely forested area and you know so you can go in and, and raid the airbase on foot. Now it had been um, attacked repeatedly by um, allied bombers so Amer both American and British fleets of warplanes had tried to destroy this airbase. It was called Etomp. In fact Etomp Mondesir was the, was the airbase but because the Germans had this really extraordinary cunning and, 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 and accomplished form of camouflage where they built these force forests out of chicken wire and, and wood. So from the air it looked like a forest and beneath these forest trees there were the warplanes hidden. So bombing it from the air had really caused very little damage at all. Hence Garstan and his Sabu 70 stick getting sent back in pretty much immediately to, to attack the airbase. And unfortunately the Gestapo uh, based in Paris had uh, developed something they called the Funkspiel, which it means radio game literally in Germany. And the radio game was they were using captured SOE radio sets and code books and sometimes getting the help of captured SOE agents to send false messages to SOE headquarters in London via which they were calling in more airdrops of weaponry, uh, ammunition, uh, supplies, money and also agents into Gestapo ambushes. So they were luring in these airdrops to just capture them. And, and Sabu 70, Garstin's patrol, fell victim to one of those functional operations. So when they deploy to sabotage the Atomp air base, actually, they drop into an SS and Gestapo ambush. Yeah, which is not a, uh, a fun day for anybody. The descriptions, the fact that so many people survived that first day, so you're able to get you know, so many people's sense of what happened. Is remarkable and I think the wonderful thing about the way you write this part of the book is you capture the German sense they thought they might get some supplies and one radio operator but suddenly to have you know 12 elite troops falling out of the sky who hit the ground realize it's gone horribly wrong and within a minute the firefights kicked off and they're doing what they're trying to do working independently pushing out you know trying to work together if they can but at the very least you know, throw some grenades, spray some rounds and take some Germans with them. And you know, they're outnumbered in this process. But there's, you know, a few pages there, well, a few minutes listening to the audiobook where you think, hang on, maybe they're going to you know, manage to pull this off and get loose here. And it's going to be about them being hunted as a group rather than the majority of them being captured. Yeah, so, you know, one of the reasons it comes completely out of the blue, apart from the fact they've got no forewarning about it, is when Garstin, who's the first down, typically always leading from the front, he lands on the drop zone, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's around midnight, and he sees a figure addressed in civis who, who shouts, Vive la France, Long de France. A typical greeting of the resistance, they're expecting a resistance reception party. It's only when that Frenchman gets close enough to whisper to him that he warns him there are Bosch Germans all around. and you know, it, that, that entrapment is complete. So Garstan's led into the tree, surrounded by German soldiers, held at gunpoint, and, and they try to force him to call the rest of his men in, at which point, of course, they would all have been captured at gunpoint. And Garstan refuses and breaks free and is, is gunned down. 
and that's when it kicks off. And like you say, many of these, many of Garstan's patrol, Ginger Jones in particular, Vachelik, many of these guys fight to the last grenade in the last round. Uh, but bear in mind, because it's a stick of 12 parachutists flying in a Sterling, no matter how closely and how quickly they exit that warplane, they're spread. They're laced out across the, the sky. Yeah. And the last three men don't land in the clearing. They drop in the woodland. So that's Castello, Morrison, and one other. And they are not captured. So when they, when they volunteer, when they say to, 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 those, to, to, to those men in, in, in their stick that they can hear have been injured, when they say we're coming in to, to help you, Lieutenant Vihey, in a real testament to the integrity and, and, and honour of, of the man, says, no, don't come. You know, uh, make yourself scarce, make, make for the Normandy beaches, leave us. And so he orders those men under his command to, to make a getaway, which they do. So those three guys get away, but the others are all injured, killed or captured. Yeah, and the injuries are quite incredible. The fact the VA can't move, has rounds in his neck and his back. Garston is in a disastrous state, you know, between bullets and the beating. The fact that either of them survived the night, let alone weeks, is remarkable. It is very, you know, it's absolutely, it, I mean, both of their survival, uh, you know, is, well, it, yeah, there are no words. And bear in mind also that, that not only do, 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 do they survive, you know, the horrendous injuries, as you say, Vihey in particular, he's paralysed from the waist down, um, you know, but, but they are, they're taken to the hospital La, La Salpetria in Paris, and they are given no medical treatment. So, uh, but even worse, they are almost immediately, in, in Vihe's case, because he's got this unusual name, un, I mean unusual for a British soldier, of course it's not unusual in Mauritius, um, but because of his surname, they suspect him of being a Frenchman, and so immediately he's got Gestapo beating him and interrogating him. And he's been shot three times. He's paralyzed from the waist down and he's been given no treatment. And, and, and Captain Garstin, Garstin fares little better in terms of how he is treated. So the fact that they survive for weeks on end, this incarceration in Paris with no treatment whatsoever is, is yeah, it's utterly remarkable. And I think this is what, sorry, amazing i don't know if it's just how much experience you have writing or if it's the material you were able to find but the fact that each of the german characters you describe ends up with their own personality and you have people like the german soldier who was captured you know by the allies in world war one and spent time in a prisoner of war camp who tries to be a reasonable captor you have the sort of zeal-laden psychotic little you know pretty boy SS guys and everything in between. And it, it's almost like the SS guys have to keep working out, okay, what's this guy? Is this guy going to take pleasure in violence or is he going to do the bare minimum to try and interrogate me? And every situation, there's slightly different behavior from each German they encounter. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, th there are good Germans in this story. Hawk, yeah. the man you mentioned, he was yeah. captured. He, he's a long-serving soldier. He, he, he had, you know, retired due to old age from the military before the Second World War. He's called back again because, you know, obviously Germany needs, you know, to recruit further um, individuals to the cause. He's too old to serve in the military, so he becomes Gestapo. Uh, he's serving in Paris with Kiefer, the head of the Gestapo in Paris, who is an old school friend of his. And... Hogg was captured during World War I by the British. He was held for three years in a British POW camp, and he was treated properly, by which I mean he was treated as a genuine prisoner of war who should be uh, uh, afforded the protections under international law. And Hogg is there the night of the capture of these men. He's there on the drop zone, okay? So he's seen them captured in full British uniform, full British uniform. And for him, it is extremely difficult and sits very uncomfortably that the way these men are being treated. And, and, and as time goes on, it gets worse and worse and worse. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have someone like Von Capri, you know, the SS 
the, the, the SS zealot, you could argue, young, young guy, um, fluent in several languages, including French, who really is your, your, your archetypal SS um, diehard who believes that, you know, Germany will win the war, that the Nazi cause is just, and that these men do, fate, do, do deserve the very worst that the SS and Gestapo can offer them. And you've got everything in between. You've got Kiefer, for example. He's a fascinating character, head of the Gestapo in Paris, who a, a real aficionado of the Funkspiel. He really masterminds it and develops it, you know. Um, and he's a very, very interesting character psychologically. He's, he realizes that the, the best way to get any captured British agents or soldiers to talk and cooperate is to treat them in a way that they would like to be treated in Britain. So he often tea and cakes. He talks them about rugby and cricket and all these things that, that, that a British soldier might relate to. You know, he acts like their friend. Is he really befriending them? Is he befriending them only because he knows it might make them cooperate and talk? And when you look at the cases of those he does befriend, as soon as their usefulness seems to be over for him, he's quite happy to do what, what, what you know, he's been ordered to do, which is then send them off to Germany where they go into the concentration camps and they are consigned to the Nacht and Nebel, you know, the night and fog, which is what Hitler had decreed. He said, look, any captured allied uh, SOE agents or special forces will be subject to Nacht and Nebel treatment, which means night and fog. Their loved ones, their relatives, their country will never even know what happened to them. So it's not just murdering, torturing, killing them. It's destroying any essence of their identity or any record they ever existed. So, you know, Kiefer, bad, good guy, bad guy, something in between, so hard to determine. And whether he was a committed Nazi or just committed to winning, that's not even very clear with him. He likes to win. He likes power. He likes influence. So, yeah, he, he comes across as such an interesting character, the way you've written him. Yeah, Kiefer, Kiefer you know, he was, a, he was a very accomplished sportsman during his youth. He was a winner. He saw mm. himself as a winner. And, you know... How much for him is it just another uh, an, another challenge that he has to win? You know, um, really hard guy to, to to fathom out. You know, one of those multifaceted characters that um, you know that, that 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 can can appear all things to all people almost. I suppose that made him a very good Gestapo um, agent and commander. Yeah, and you know, you get some fascinating even just the small characters along the way that they encounter. So when they start moving the SAS guys to the, the prison block in Paris, they're going to keep them in, you know, a former building used by the Americans. And the guards there are Russian prisoners of war who've been given the choice, get work to death or work for us. So, you know, you've got Russians in Paris, you know, acting as sort of the low-level, you know, guards for SAS in what used to be an American diplomatic building. The sheer kind of insanity of it all is crazy. And then we get yeah. the thing that the, you know, the original Czech guy speaks a little bit of Russian. So he starts being able to try and communicate with the Russians. And you're like, How's all you, know, you couldn't make this up for a script, but here yeah, it is happening. And, and, and bear in mind those Russian guards, you know, in a, in a way they're the good guys. Yeah. Because yeah, it's the Russian absolutely. guard who allows Vachelik and Jones and, and, and Garstin to move around some leeway each other. Yeah. to move around, look after each other, share news, keep their spirits up, you know, um, so put yourself in their shoes. That's what I often do when I write, you know, try and write one of these stories. I think, okay, let's, let's see the world from this Russian POW's perspective. Well, he either faces annihilation at the hands of, you know, the Nazi war machine. It would be work to get death in a slave labor camp and then and, and either die from that or, or get executed. That's one option. Or the other option is become some sort of low-level dog's body guard for the for the, for the Nazi war machine. Well, what would you choose? And then if you did choose the latter and you got the chance to try and do something of some good for some of those of your allies, because of course the, you know, British and Russia were allies during the war. Um, would you take that opportunity? Which of course you would, if you knew you could probably get away with it without getting punished by those people who would force you into that situation in the first place. So all those dilemmas, you know, are kind of delve in, delved into and explored. and you know, it makes for a fascinating kind of multi-layered scenario. 
Well, like when they're, you know, in the American building in Paris and in one of the cells, they've got a young woman who's about to be executed. Now for a bunch of SAS soldiers to see a young woman just calmly going, you know, probably to her death. And again, the Russians giving them a chance to interact with her, at least go and say hello, you know, so that she knows someone knows what's happened to her. You know, the risks that the Russian guards took were absolutely amazing. Yeah, and those those stories, of course, of those female SOE agents, you know, absolutely, well, you know, words fail me. You know, they, they, if there was ever the phrase, the bravest of the brave to be used, it has to be extended to them because, you know, it goes without saying, when you were a female captured by, you know, the enemy and held by the Gestapo and SS, there were certain things that could be done to you, which we don't need to go into, which uh, would make your trials and tribulations so utterly horrendous and and many of them you know demonstrated the well just humbling unspeakable bravery in going to their torture and their execution without breathing a word you know that that is just it's courage above and beyond anything that the human mind can understand so yeah those stories i've tried to filter them in there the story of Nur in Khan, the you know standout female soe hero from the war um, you know, I, I, I've, I've told those kind of in parenthesis to the story. And this is one of the challenges of writing a book like this, of course. You know, you just stumble upon, as you tell the narrative, all these stories of just the most incredible courage and heroism and, and, and drama. And, 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 you know, you could go off into any one of these side allies. I mean, I'll just yeah. give you an example. Like the escape of the three guys who drop into the woodland when the patrols ambushed. Any one of those escape stories is a complete epic in itself. But, you know, you've got to stay focused on the narrative. You've got to stay focused on your key characters, your band of brothers, because that's what carries the reader through the narrative and the book, in my opinion. And, and it's, it's also getting... this time frame. It must be getting harder and harder that if you try and track down those small stories, one out of, what, 50 has enough information for you to go further? And the rest, unfortunately, yeah. can only be a footnote. Some of them do, some of them don't, of course. And yeah. there are stories which, you know, you come across and think, yeah, there's a lot of material here. But, you know, you've got to keep, you've got to stick with your, your main narrative. That's one of, the, one of the, the, the kind of keys to the kind of stories I tell. You know, you want the reader to get to know the people that they are with. You want them to be with those, you know, that, 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 that band of men or women, you know, doing those extraordinary things. And you want them to be absolutely close to them and get to know them so you can't you can't dis, di, di, you know dilute that that focus too much but there are you know there are any number of like side stories that the book touches upon which are equally compelling mm. and this is the thing the morning that they put on the trucks to be driven to the forest to be killed the tension just starts building because you're like okay some of these people have to survive because you're able to tell the story to this point and there's a lot more of the audio book left. <laughs> so you kind of get a hint that someone's going to survive the execution in the forest. Yeah. You I mean, really you don't know at that point who you're, ab you're absolutely right. Because, you know, look, look, you know, you, you have a contract with the reader or the listener, of course, and the contract with the reader or the listener is, you know, suspend your, your foreknowledge, suspend your disbelief, you know, because, I need you to come with me on this journey. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so, so we all know that someone's got to survive for this story to be tellable. Um, otherwise, you know, we couldn't be here reading this or listening to this, mm. but you know, I'll reveal that, you know, when the time is right. And, and, and for the time being, just don't flick through the pages to find out, you mm. know, stick with me because I'm going to get, take you there in, in the fullness of time. And, you know, the other thing that's incredible about this, this patrol and this story is that, you know, when they're sent to that, you know, to the to that dark patch of French woodland north of Paris to be murdered by their SS and Gestapo captors, it's on Hitler's personal orders from Berlin. And there's a very, very, very kind and lovely lady who helped me so much writing this book, which is the daughter of Eric Bill Barkworth, who's the who was the head of the SAS Nazi, Nazi war crimes hunting um, team. And she sent me, um, you know, his, um, some of his, you know, papers that have never seen the light of day before. And what became so clear from that, and it's fascinating, was that Hitler 
took commando an SAS and SOE operation so behind the lines missions as deeply personal insults against him and his senior senior commanders it was somehow you know this was directed against him personally so his attention to what would happen to those individuals captors captured from those units was very very particular and personal you would have thought with all the other things he had going on in the war he would not have time for 12 captured SAS men or seven captured SAS men or 31 captured SAS men in, 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 in the Vogue later on. But indeed he did because Hitler believed that this kind of warfare in his, in his misapprehension was somehow a personal insult against the Reich. Now I know there were mostly SOE driven assassination missions. So Reinhard Heydrich comes mm. to mind in Prague um, Rommel, you know, several assassination missions against Rommel, first in North Africa, Operation Flipper, then in France, where they targeted his headquarters. Those were actually special forces missions. So there were, there were assassination missions, but behind the lines operations are not illegal. There's nothing illegal about them at all. And in fact, the Germans carried out the first behind lines missions, you could argue, of the war, when they used paratroopers to invade Belgium and take the forts, for example, mm. you know, and, and the Germans had actually issued legal um, opinions justifying the use of airborne forces behind the lines. So this personal interest of the Führer, you know, his issuance of the commander order, this diktat issued in 1942, that all captured allied parachute troops would be kept alive only for as long as it took the Gestapo and SS to torture them and find out what information they needed, after which they would be killed without trial, whether captured, you know, trying to surrender or, or, or whatever. That commander order was the kind of distillation of all this resentment and hatred that he, the Führer, had against these kind of soldiers. And it's quite incredible with Sabu 70 because it also lines up with the attempt on Hitler's life. So he's even more, you know, out there than usual, assuming the whole world wants to kill him because, well, they actually do. Yeah, so Operation Valkyries happened, of course. Wh whilst Sabu 70, you know, the captives, the seven guys are held either in the Avenue Foch in Paris or at the hospital, um, they learn from the Russian guards that Operation Valkyries happened, that, you know, there's been an attempt on Hitler's life. They very nearly killed him. Of course, there is a British signature on that operation because some of the components of the bomb that was used are actually you know, from Britain. And so Hitler is even more convinced, even more paranoid that there's this massive conspiracy being masterminded by the SOE and British, British special forces to, to take him out and his senior commanders. And so when the, the, the fate is delivered to the, you know, Patrick Garstan and his men, you know, it, 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 it is for their, um, their dark murder. And there's no other word for it. It's not an execution. This is murder plain and simple not putting they are, in plain clothes taking away any sign of the being military taking away military issue watches anything to make sure they just look like a bunch of you know french citizens fighting back you're absolutely right that that's and bear in mind the way they did that it was so cynical and premeditated so yeah Kiefer, the head of the gestapo he realizes that you know, he's going to have a problem on his hand trying to get these tough SAS men who haven't broken, by the way, despite the weeks of incarceration. Uh, Ginger Jones, Corporal Thomas Ginger Jones, the real standout hero of the SAS patrol in terms of soldiering, one of the SAS originals from you know, David Sterling's earliest days. You know, he's carried on swearing at his guards in his thick Wigan accent, using all the expletives you can possibly imagine knowing they won't understand them because his English is quite hard to understand. They haven't been broken. And the Irish men on the patrol, you know, Garstan had in, in it, so the stick was split into two units. There was Garstan's um, six and there was Vihay's six. And, and all, all but one of, of Garstan's men were, were from Ireland. And these were spirited fighting Irishmen. You know, they were a handful. Mm. They hadn't broken. And... And, and Kiefer realises he's going to have a problem getting these guys to change into civilian clothes, which is what Hitler's execution order has demanded. They will be killed in a dark patch of French woodland in civilian clothes. And so he comes up with a cover story. And the cover story is, look, we've arranged a prisoner exchange. We're going to drive you to Switzerland. 
and you're going to be swapped with some German prisoners held by the British. And the only reason we need you to change into civilian clothes is so that you can undertake that journey and cross the border. And Captain Garstan, because he's such a decent, honourable, um, upstanding man, believes that story. He can't believe that, that you know, a, a, a German officer, and, and Kiefer is, he's a major, you know, is a German officer. He can't believe that a German an officer of a foremost military nation can um, engineer such um, lies, you know, such lies and falsehoods. And so he, he chooses to believe it. Some of the others are far less convinced and they do try and resist changing into these horrific civilian clothes they're presented with, some of which already have bullet holes in them, by the way. And, um, the, uh, you know, those who do, Vachelik and Jones foremost amongst them are then forced to change at gunpoint before being driven to that patch of French woodland to face their fates. It must have been a terrible scene to have to work out how do you write it up? Because there's the memories from the Brits or the SAS who survived and you know the, the Germans would all have their own view. I would imagine chunks of which were then used from the later you know, court cases against them. So trying to put all those pieces together to make the cohesive narrative, I would imagine was very difficult. Yeah, I mean, like some, you know, but Hogg, who we've talked about yeah. earlier, who was held prisoner by the British, you know, I mean, he was appalled, obviously. Yeah. What, 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 you know, the first he knew of what had happened was when he, he, he's just ordered to join some convoy, drive, you know, of trucks driving out of Paris that, that, that night. And the first he knows that it's the SAS captives who are being loaded onto this truck is when he sees these, apparently these civilians being led out to, to, to board the truck and he realised it's, it's the same men that were captured several weeks before uh, and, you know, who were British soldiers. And he's like, what's going on here? And he hasn't got a clue that he's going to be forced to form part of the murder party, part of the execution party. Yeah. It's only when they march them into the woodland and he hears the murder order being read out by Schnur, the head of the SS a unit who's taken them out there, that he realises, my God, we're going to have to shoot these guys. And he's appalled. So, yeah, you've got all those different, you know, for, if you read the transcripts from the court cases later on, you've got all these different attitudes from the diehard Von Capri who you know, joys, revels in the fact that they're going to murder these so-called terrorists, as he calls them, to at the other end of the spectrum, you've got Hawk, who's absolutely horrified and knows that this is wrong. And this is sort of the terrible thing to jump forward because, again, listeners, go read the book and you'll find out who survives. But what's fantastic with Damien's book is we then get the aftermath of the people surviving from this the SAS finding out what happened, the beginning of the SAS hunting Nazis and really doing it in their typical do it well, win way. You know, under, was it Major Barkworth? Is he a major by that point or is he still? Yeah, a Major Barkworth, yeah. yeah. Like, so, and we've got comments about Barkworth in passing and they're fantastic. Like, oh, we do it the Barkworth way, you know, combination of whiskey and Benny's. <laughs> like, okay, they're all self-medicating on whiskey and amphetamines. <laughs> and yet they're not torturing prisoners. They're not killing people out of hand. They're accumulating evidence, dossiers, grabbing people, and then providing them to courts going, here's your person, here's all the evidence, and we haven't hurt them. So get on with the trial and then hang them. Yeah, no, look, one of the things that, that Amy Barkworth um you know, Major Bill Barkworth's daughter was was really keen to have um, communicated in the book, and you know, again, so helpful. Was that her father was an absolute diehard adherent to justice. In fact, you know, there, I, I think it's quoted in the book. One of his reports that she sent me, he says, "These trials have to reflect the British sense of fair play, and not smack." of SS and Gestapo summary justice in inverted commas, i.e. for him, this was not about revenge. Yes, it was about vengeance. It was about vengeance for those who had been murdered, but it was not about revenge. It was about justice being done 
and the importance of justice being seen to be done so that these kind of things would never be repeated in the future. This was a man, and this is why I've got so much admiration for, you know, Major Barkworth and the operation he ran, because although they were mavericks and they did uh, do things completely um, breaking all the rules, they broke every single rule under the sun to get the suspects, and rightfully so, in my opinion. You know, they realised that if you if you played it by the books and you sent the the, the you know the the, the 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 permission orders to move from one zone of occupation to another post-war to go and try and get a, a suspected war criminal. By the time you'd got all the permissions, the, the war criminal would have been warned because all networks were leaky and he would disappear again. So what they would do is jump in their aging World War II jeeps, drive on the back roads and lanes, avoid all the checkpoints, arrive in the middle of the night, heavily armed, and, and snatch the guy, and then driving back to, mm. their, to their makeshift prison come interrogation unit at the Villa Degla in Gagano. And... It worked. It was one of the most successful uh, war crimes hunting operations ever. And there were times when the other, the other official war crimes hunting, you know, outfits of the British said, look, your mission is completely undoable. It, it, you'll never find out who is responsible for murdering all your comrades. It, it's impossible. Just give up. And Barkworth said, uh, <laughs> absolutely no way. And, and by the end of his period, you know, so Summer night 48 is when their operations are eventually wound up. And by the end of that period, he's hauled into custody, interrogated and broken over 100 Nazi war criminals. It's and the significant thing, it operation. seems, is they've done it all in uniform, wearing their red berets, making it very clear. Yeah? We're not hiding. We're not lurking in shadows. We'll grab you in the middle of the night, but we'll grab you in SAS uniform. We'll make it quite clear that this is us coming to get the justice. And this is the incredible thing as, you know, the book goes on and you deal with the legal ramifications and we start seeing how willing the Allies were to disappear SS and Gestapo officers with experience on the Eastern Front because, you know, people were looking into the future and going, well, as bad as what these guys have done, we're about to face the Soviet Union in something that could even be worse. So Barkworth's got the problem too of, in a sense, you know, realising I'm actually going up against the whole system here some of the time that's already starting to see that some of these Germans are being put beyond reach. Totally. So, you know, um, there was a very widespread campaign of recruitment of senior SS and Gestapo in particular by the, the Allies, and by the Allies I mean the British and the Americans and the French, but also the Russians, um, to draw into uh, the intelligence services basically those who had experience of fighting on the Eastern Front, or, or not so much fighting, but carrying out intelligence-led operations on the Eastern Front, running agents, that kind of thing. And, and the reasons are obvious, you know. Um, everyone was looking to the Cold War, and by 1947, 1948, the lukewarm appetite, allied appetite for war crimes trials, which had never been the hunger had never been there, certainly amongst the British government, but, but, but other governments as well had really, really gone stone cold. And what, what they were concentrating on at that stage was the future coming conflict that beckoned. And they believed, rightfully or wrongly, and you know, that debate is a very long debate, that some of these individuals, um, and one of them is dealt with right at the end of the book, some of these high-ranking individuals responsible for hundreds and hundreds of deaths of allied agents and special forces uh, were better being recruited quietly and secretly into the allied intelligence apparatus than being tried for war crimes and hung. Yeah, the, dealing with that is strange enough, but then you get that final just ambiguous character of the SOE operative turned by the Gestapo in Berlin, who's pretending that you know he worked for them only to get more intel. He's the most probably ambiguous character in the entire book. And when he turns up to you know, give evidence on behalf of one of the German officers at his trial, of, oh, he's a good chap. It's just surreal. Yeah, so um, Agent Starr. Um, what a nice guy. Yeah, as you say, the standout ambivalent character of the whole book. You know, um, 
captured by the Gestapo, you know, carried out a number of heroic missions on behalf of, of the SOE early on in the war, finally captured by the Gestapo, injured during, shot and injured during trying his first escape attempt, but then spends 11 months, you know, at the Gestapo's Avenue Fork headquarters, you know, at best, assisting them, um, at, at worst, being a collaborator, you know, and, and he claims, sorry, and then he's sent to um, the concentration camps and manages to survive and, and comes back to the UK at the end of the war, whereupon he's, he's, an, he's immediately seized by the SOE to be debriefed and interrogated. And he claims that he did what he did at the Gestapo's headquarters to gather intelligence on how deeply SOE had been penetrated. So when he actually finally managed to escape and get back to allied lines, he could reveal all of that intelligence. Now, in it's, in it's such a, a tough one to get your head around because, you know, yeah. had, he, had he achieved that? Let's say, for example, he had escaped in September 44 and got back to allied lines and blown the whistle on the Funkspiel and how deeply SOE in particular had been, had been penetrated by the Gestapo he probably would have been a standout hero of the war. Yeah. But returning as he did, you know, kind of pretty much war's end and having been seen by so many ensconced in the Avenue Fox Gestapo headquarters, apparently helping them, you know, draft their, their, their diagrams of all the SOE circuits, possibly helping would he by his own admission, helping draft certain radio messages, you know, um, and then giving evidence finally in that 1947 trial against the Sabu 7 murderers, but not on behalf of the, the, you know, the, those British soldiers who were killed, but on behalf of the Gestapo men who were charged with the responsibility of murdering them. Starr is just the most ambiguous character you could ever come across. And, um, you know, as you say, he's one of those characters which if you, if you, if you kind of try to make Starr up for a fiction, it, it wouldn't be credible, but he's real. He's all too real. And, you know, when... Jones and Vachelik go to Germany for the court case and they're expecting to feel better at the end of this and they just feel hollow. So you've got an idea that really their friends are still all dead. They now know exactly how everything happened and who was in charge and how it worked. And yet you've got someone like Starr who can apparently fly in and out and keep restating history to suit himself in the same way that lots of the senior SS and Gestapo people involved in the story go, Oh, I was only following orders was only doing this and just keep bending the story to change their perception of self enough to not realize what the consequences are going to be. So it's ironic that at the end of the book, the steadfastness of the SAS guys leaves them hollow at the end when everyone else is still scrambling to be something other than who they are and to behave differently. You know, yeah. That, that... I mean, you know, it, 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 it's so often the case when you read about these, these war crimes trials that, you know, those that generally SS and Gestapo who stand accused can't believe they have done anything wrong. I mean, remember yeah. in the book, Kiefer, the head of the Gestapo in Paris, the man who's engineered so much of this before his trial tells his daughter, I think it's all going to be okay. I don't have very much to worry about. We were just following orders. They all use that excuse, the defense of superior orders. We were under orders of Hitler's commander order. You know, we were under, under threat of death from the Fuhrer. If we had disobeyed this, therefore it's not our responsibility. And that you see that time and time again across these cases. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that, oh, sorry. Sorry, you go to. I'm sure you've seen uh, and, and probably read and, and come to your own conclusions about whether those people I, I mean i don't necessarily want to prod an answer from you but I, i'm sure you've read enough about like goldstein's you know hitler's willing executioners and all those kinds of things to have come across your own verdict i'm sure <laughs> yeah i mean look barkworth himself says and I, again i think I, i'm sure i quote it in the book he says look you know from 1933 the german people were subjected to an orwellian system of absolute control and, and allegiance and it wasn't just control and allegiance to the nazi party it was control and allegiance to hitler himself you know the ss was hitler hitler was the head of state that was it you were and whatever 
Hitler said was law. You know, the law became what Hitler decreed. Hitler and his, you know, and his retained lawmakers, um, legal experts, who, who twisted the law. And so the idea that you might object, um, resist, disobey, it was so far from the experience of most of the German population by 1939 and the outbreak of war. And within that context, you know, Barkworth has some sympathy for this defense that these, these, these individuals raise in their trial. But bear in mind, at the end of the book, you know, there's that iconic figure, Kopko, head of the, um, head of the anti-parachute operations in Berlin, you know, appointed by Hitler himself. And he stands in the dock and he's not giving evidence on behalf of the defendants, on behalf of his SS and Gestapo colleagues. He's giving evidence against them. And it's damning evidence. It's absolutely damning evidence. He says, look, no one was ever punished or killed for not obeying the commander order. So, you know, uh, this defense they're all putting forward, that they were only following orders on pain of death doesn't hold water. And actually it's Kopko's evidence that I think is some of the most damning of all, because what defense is there to take you, take you back from there? Yeah. And the interesting thing with that is that's part of the thing of a cult of personality. There is no system that works. There are only individuals you need to be afraid of, which means there is a surprising amount of wiggle room and you know, Germans throughout the book do what they want to do within reason. Uh, and this is sort of the, in a sense, the one terrible thing at the trials that, you know, Haug, the old German who'd been a prisoner in World War I, ends up with the death penalty as probably the person who helped provide the most evidence from a German perspective of what had happened, how it happened and who did what. Just trying Absolutely. to still be some sort of soldier as he understood it, abiding, you know, by some moral standards that go, well, I'm a soldier in my country's military, but I still didn't go further than I was meant to. Yeah. I mean, you know, Barkworth himself, pleads for leniency for Hawk. do you remember mm. you know this is the head of the SAS war crimes investigation team who has spent months if not years tracking these guys down and it's in tracking down Hawk, if you remember who mm. goes back to visit his family in 1947 and and the SAS war crimes investigation team have a, have his house staked out yeah, he goes back to visit him. his family can't resist going back to see his children he's got you know several children and that's how they capture him it's capturing Hawk that Barkworth sits him down and says, come on, you know, you were held by the British for three years as a prisoner of war. We treated you fairly. Tell me where the rest of the guys are. And, he, and it's Hogg who gives Barkworth chapter and verse to track down everybody else involved in those yeah. murders. And even all of that being said, when Hogg is given the death penalty, Barkworth pleads for clemency. He says, look, you know, of any of them, this guy was, was an upstanding, well, well, was as upstanding as and you could be within could the be. system. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, Hogg is not giving clemency and he's, he's duly hung along with the rest of them. Which then, you know, Barkworth so much wanting it to be proper justice. But then the thing is he put the claim for clemency forward. So since the system had all the information, so I hope Barkworth was able to walk away from that going, this was all done in a way that shows to people who haven't had justice what it looks like for a justice system to work as well as anything can done by humans who've suffered and been through a terrible war and are seeing the horrors of what humans did to humans. It may not have been perfect justice, but it was pretty good justice based on what had happened for the last 10 years in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's all there on the record, you know, Barkworth's mm. clemency plea, it's a long document and it's very well argued. He pulls in lots of, you know, lots of evidence, lots of, lots of, you know, really complicated arguments, well made. Uh, it's all there on the record. It goes to the right authority, you know, the, 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 the person in charge who should make those decisions and a decision is duly made. So the due process is done. And that's, that was, that was really crucial to Barkworth. It's sort of the irony that within the same regiment, we have people fighting with an intensity that you would think make them cross a line. And the SAS guys in the book don't. We have Barkworth in the same regiment 
fighting for justice with the same intensity and not crossing a line and maintaining his humanity and still being able to see the humanity in some of the Germans he's interacting with. He's not just seeing them all as, as dehumanized villains. And I think that's the real power of how you've written the story up is that you can see an equivalence in the intensity of fighting a war or fighting for justice and that the moral and sort of the code of the brotherhood of this regiment is so profoundly deep and moral and intense. It's quite remarkable. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what is, is really extraordinary about Barkworth in particular. You, you've hit the nail on the head. You could argue that had they so chosen to drag certain individuals into a ditch and put a bullet in their head, they may have been justified, but Barkworth is having none of that. You, you know, and when you read the, 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 you know, the, the source documents, the amazing thing about them, look, that's why he was so successful as a war crimes hunter and as an interrogator. Because when he brought the German suspects into the Villa Degla basement interrogation room, he did so with respect. Mm. He spoke fluent German. He spoke German so fluently that German people believed he was German, right? And he did so with respect. And he didn't condemn these people. He didn't say, you're a monster. He spoke, sat down and spoke to them as fellow human beings who'd been placed in terrible situations. And that's how he got them to talk. So, you know, it's this counterintuitive approach. You know, there'll be no, and he was, he was absolutely clear, there will be no torture there'll be no beatings. We will treat these people with absolute respect and as they should be treated under the rules of law. And that was the best way to get, to get the fullest information and cooperation out of them. Yeah. And it's very timely because again, you may not be aware there in the UK, but here in Australia, uh, our defense force has just finished its inquiry into the war in Afghanistan. And there are likely to be, you know, charges moved forward against, you know, 23 Australian special forces soldiers for 39 deaths in Afghanistan, 39 murders. But the point is the ADF is making sure that justice comes out. You, know, yeah. you can fight it, it, war and look for justice with the same intensity, even when things go wrong. Yeah, I mean, in terms of a lesson that, that, that comes out of, you know, the, 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 the SS war crimes hunting operations, you know, 1945 to 48, they break every rule to get the suspects, but once they've got them, they abide by the letter of the law, absolutely. And it, it, it's fascinating. There was a, a unit in, in London during, during World War II called Camp 020. Anyway, it was the unit at which captured German agents. So German agents inserted into the UK who were captured were held and turned. And it was the double cross system. That's where it's developed, right? And the guy who ran it, said we will never none of the my staff will ever mistreat or beat or torture or abuse any of the people held here and he didn't say that because he was a, he was a diehard humanitarian he said because all you will get by doing that is confessions which means nothing because a man facing extreme pain will admit to anything to make the pain stop so even from a practical perspective, it doesn't deliver. And that's what Barkworth enshrined, you know? His system delivered. It delivered in every single case. In every single case, amazingly, he got his suspects to talk. And if you read their statements, most of them read like confessions. Yeah, which is amazing. So listeners, I think if you're going to take one thing away from this conversation and take it into listening to or reading Damien's book, it's that you can fight to win and fight for justice with exactly the same amount of intensity and with your morality intact, doing both things. And that's the incredible lesson of people like you know, Garston and V. Hay and Vachelik and Barkworth and Dusty Rhodes as you know, Barkworth number two, is that with intensity doesn't mean crossing a line. I think that sounds like a good note to end on. Um, uh, unless I, there's anything you'd like to add, Damien, that you think I've missed. 
I think that's a perfect summing up, my friend. You know, um, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. In fact, you know, the truth of the matter is, you know, one delivers the other. You know, Precisely. the morality can lead you to the intensity, and the morality will keep the intensity in check. Yep, absolutely. Once again, Damien Lewis, thank you very much for coming and spending time with us, and look forward to talking to you either when you write a book next or you just feel like telling us cool stories. Brilliant. It's been a real pleasure and as always, uh, hugely enlightening talking to you guys, yeah? (laughs) Thank you. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Peace out.